you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to give it a try. I wanted to try it before, but my computer couldn't handle it. So now it can. So let's, that's my backyard from last winter. That's why. It's funny. I have any number of dynamic things that I guess I could do. And it said there's even like a dynamic background package you could do. But yeah. when I download it, it seems to be that it's static images, or maybe it's like slow moving northern lights where it's not as dramatic as snow coming down. Anyway, I'll yeah. have to investigate that because. I'm still using Zoom quite a bit, and it's fun to split it up instead of just being here I am in Skynet, that kind of thing. Okay, so let's start. I definitely want to talk about the Time Life Geek thing. We talked about it last year, so let's see what they got this year. But before we got do that, I have a topic, but some trivia to go with it. So let's see if you get this, all right? So (laughs) what large corporation started out with the name Syzygy and had to change their name. Wow. So Syzygy is a conjunction of the planets. Right. So, as opposed to Symergy, which is beer making. But anyway, so let's see. I'm trying to think, what, like, not NASA, obviously. Oh. oh. I'll give you a clue. Here was their original tagline was okay. innovative leisure. Why am I blanking? So, I don't know. But like Nintendo or one of the big gaming console makers. Very close. Nintendo's actually been around since the 1800s. They started off making playing cards. Interesting. I knew that. I knew that there's a couple of companies that they came to electronics after having done like that. The Sonys of the world aren't just an, a, a, an electronics company. They have <laughs> like a 500-year plan since they started. Sony. So, I have a Sony guitar. <laughs> like that. Exactly. Okay. So the com- company, yeah. Atari. So I, I, maybe I would have gotten there because they are a console, if you will. Okay. Yeah. So, so what made them give it up? Not another company having the same name, but yes. nobody could spell it. Really no, 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 somebody else had the name, so they had to change it. And some of their early marketing still says Syzygy on there. But okay, here's a, a related trivia. Okay. Who designed the original breakout game for Atari? Wow. So... It's not going to be like famous Harimoro or something like that? No. Oh. How about Brian Eno? How about Todd Rundgren, like a music guy? That would be cool because Kawasaki <laughs> did some stuff. Okay. No, it was Wozniak and Steve Jobs. Jobs, whatever. He designed Breakout. Yes. I never knew that. Okay, yeah. that's cool. All right. So here's where I'm getting all of this. They just released the Atari 50th Anniversary Collection. It's a game type thing, but it's really cool because, of course, I was like, okay, I'm not waiting for a sale on this one. I've got to have this one right now. All right. Um, But it has 100 different games through all the eras. 
It has Atari 2600 and 7800. It has arcade machines. It has Lynx and Jaguar games See, that I've never really seen. Cool. Okay. Uh, yeah. And there, and then it has like remakes and remasters, reimagined. They have Haunted House, which I was joking with Reese. I'm like, Reese, this is like the original horror game, Haunted House. Right. Where it's know? pixelated to where there's 16 blocks on the screen. And that kind of thing. Okay. But they reimagined it. So it's 3D and you're walking around in a 3D maze and, and <laughs> Missile Command and Centipede and a few other games reimagined. Yeah. But yeah. I've already have most of those through other flashbacks and <laughs> compilations. Okay. The best part is they have this whole history section, which you can go through that has little facts and stuff, but it has actual pictures and images and flyers and brochures and videos. They interviewed some of these and they got old footage from the 70s. It has Bushnell with these mutton chops and he's talking about and he's walking by the space war games that are in See, the warehouse. Really cool. Exactly. And they were I'm so uh, glad that a lot of that was captured. You know what yes. I mean? I, know that I had a friend that was involved in one of those music projects where they were trying to capture all the Appalachian music that the people that made it were dying off. And unless they it had never been recorded. So this was like the first recording of all kinds of wow. hillbilly music, if you will. You know what I mean? Anyway, back to this. Yeah. So they all that like interviews it's awesome at, at a convention or on tv or something like yeah. that when the release that's pretty cool now my one slight gripe is if you remember last year i was talking about the atari vcs that they came out with and i was excited right. getting to play atari games and they had a mode so that you could install linux and it, anybody could develop on unity and get it into the store and all that so I haven't been on there in a while. I loaded it up. I'm like, yeah. oh, come on. And I think they, you mentioned they discontinued that, right? This subsumes that? or this well, Yeah, they seem to be backing off, and they don't offer the Atari 50th collection on that system. And um, I'm like. <laughs> wow, that's a disconnection. There was like two different business units that didn't they, yeah. to each other while something as historic as the 50th right. anniversary was coming up. I would oh, hope it, it would play on there. Most of the games are already available singly on there. So I'm very, so I, I'm on my Xbox, Atari, playing Atari games. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love that. I mean, that have we ever talked about this? That world of like parallels and fusion and just emulation in general is amazing to me. Yeah. That you can actually say for this old 8088 chip, we can act as if we're exactly one of those on a newer chip down to every port, every machine level instruction and stuff like that, and simulate that so that you really can run all those historic things on new equipment. And there's amazing intelligence that goes into it. You can't do it exactly because this was big Endian instead of little Endian with memory. So we have to do a whole bunch of tricks to get it to run. But right. then once it's running, we really, we captured the chip. And I loved it. That's been going on for a long time now. It's not like when you go just in Windows, for instance, you can go back. What's my personal thing with this is that I have games, like I mentioned, Civilization 3, that I still like playing, even though we're on Civilization 6, much improved. And yet once in a while, exactly the combination of features right. and gameplay, I want that. And as long as they, I can get it to just be supported, it can give me the screen resolution, it can give me exactly the video drivers in emulation because Windows 11 doesn't include all that stuff in its native mode, but you can go back and say, make me look like a Windows 3.1 right. box. 
How yep, cool is that? I love that. that. And then yeah. I've got a whole <laughs> Raspberry Pi system set up as a retro arcade. And I can yeah. plug it into my TV, name a game, name a system. It's probably on there somewhere. So I love doing that. GOG, that's how GOG works. Everything's yeah. some sort of emulator, and that's all supported and approved. Exactly. So, yeah. And where they can, it's not only sometimes making it look exactly like it was, but they'll say, we improved the video so that now instead of 16-bit, it's 32-bit. It, everything looks better, but it didn't sacrifice speed for that. They also have the chips are running so much faster nowadays that you can do things you couldn't do back then, but it also isn't so sped up. as what well, I can't even, like monsters jump me and I can't do anything about it because they didn't tweak it so that its human interface is correct. And I've actually played a couple of those where it's like, how do I put a governor on this? It's not fun if it's yeah, it yeah, runs exactly the that. clock. It's, yeah, yeah pseudo real time, and then all of a sudden, if you will, that really is like being on a zombie swarmed planet. Is you see them and then they eat you. There's no stopping a zombie horde of ten thousand at you with your your big fucking gun. You know what I mean? Right, right. No gun big enough. So right. anyway, yeah. So it, it just I I was all excited. I sat there like, okay, I'm gonna take drink my coffee in the morning. It was cold outside over the weekend. I'm going to yeah. sit here and just enjoy half hours, like two hours later. So <laughs> did you have certain old favorites that you're like, oh, I've missed you? Or did you have new ones that you wanted to try, but you never had it? How, how did you, some riches, how did you start opening the chest? You know. So I mean? let me tell you my history with Atari and okay. video games. So this is a kind of sad, but silver lining story, I guess you could mm -hmm. say. So the year Atari came out, uh, of course, it drew me in. Ooh, oh, great. And But there was no way back at that time that I was probably going to get one. Okay. They weren't outrageous, but 76, 77, 150 bucks for one gift for Christmas was quite yeah. a bit. Uh, I think we they, had like a Magnavox Odyssey system. And by having gotten that, we never got another one because that was the money. That's where right. you could invest in it. That was the one you picked. You didn't have five choices that you were going <laughs> to say, okay, kids, for you, we're going to keep spending 150 bucks each time. In right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, and I don't know what I missed, but my dad's mother, grandmother, she died that year. It was quick, un unexpected. I was six years old, yeah. so I don't remember her a whole lot. She left some money to all the kids. And my dad said, let's get a good Christmas. So okay. went from, oh boy, that would be so cool to have to not only getting an Atari, I had 10 games to get started, 10 cartridges, joysticks, paddles, wow, racing controllers. Exactly. I was the bomb for all the nerds in the second grade. <laughs> exactly. I, I really, how cool is that? Especially if you get it for Christmas. You've got like Christmas until January 5th. Do nothing but wallow in oh. all this new cool stuff. The things, some of the, and we talk about this all the time. We get our grumpy old man pants on. Some of the things the kids just do not get. There weren't save points. If you were playing adventure and you had to run the dinner, you, you were done. It, it, there was no pause, no save point right. to go back. Space Invaders. Yeah, it was the same screen every time. And it, they get, oh, graphics and blah, blah, blah. Come on. It was one screen. But we played, me and my buddy, Doug, we got so good at Space Invaders on the Atari. We could flip it with one life. We just never died. And we just keep flipping. It's like, I I'm bored. Right. I'm turning it off. See, you that, know? Honestly, that happened a couple. I 
I didn't have the gaming console like you guys did because I'm just a few years older. But what I did have was I went to University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and they were not only a wonderful student union and a couple video arcades, they were one of the test centers for any number of manufacturers where we got wow. Super Breakout first. We got whatever, when Berserk became Frenzy and just all kinds of games that honestly, I think I only saw them there. And finally, I saw them again when I was at the big expo in Pittsburgh where I go to play pinball. They also have a huge video game section. And so, oh my God, make tracks. I haven't seen this since 83. So 40 years. So anyway, it I, I invested many a quarter, but what you just said, I would sometimes stop by in between classes. I had engineering classes and business classes. And so I had to go through the union and on the quad to get there. And once in a while, I have just enough time to, okay, I'm going to play a game of Super Breakout. And I would clear, I think it was like clear the first three screens and it resets. And I'll be like, I'd leave it where you could put the paddle in the corner and we'd go beep, boop, beep, boop, back and forth. And I'd walk away as if I had peed on it or something like that. You know what I mean? I own you. I am the master. <laughs> I did that multiple times. And I must admit, it lost its allure. Like it was, am I only going to keep shooting for perfection now? Anything less than perfection is no fun. So I kept trying other games. Um, I think I might have told you this story. You, have you heard of Stephen Wolfram? Really the name high. that rings he a invented, bell. He invented Mathematica. Okay, he, yeah. And even at U of I, he was already incredibly bright. He has a great book called A New Kind of Science that pretty much talks about the universe isn't made of like hydrogen, oxygen, carbon. It's made of information that there's enough evidence that the universe is an engine for solving problems or for collecting information and distributing it. Or uh, Anyway, it's a, diff a cool, a different perspective. I used to play games next to him at U of I. Nice. There's a game called Crazy Climber where you're like yes! on, they're on a building and eagles swoop or, or whatever, buzzards swoop down and try to poop on you and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, we don't know each other to say after 40 years, hi, Al, hi, Stephen. But we saw each other there all the time. And it was one of those like geek nods. It was, but I don't know. We talked a couple times, but like I'm saying, it just was humble beginnings. While I was doing cool stuff with Play-Doh, he was doing cool stuff in whatever department he was in, maybe pure and applied mathematics. And it was just kind of cool. I knew him when he was a kid, when he was putting quarters in just like I right. was. So what you're saying there is that the white mice really did have it right. Yes, exactly. We're <laughs> hyperdimensional, pan, pan-dimensional right. pan beings. Exactly. Right. So my, I'll give you a guess what one of the favorite cartridges when I discovered they had it that I got and just absolutely loved. Take a guess what that was on the Atari. Let's see. Duck Hunt. That um, was Nintendo. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, then, so, like you mentioned, haunted house. Wasn't there like a castle one? Ad I mean, adventure. Ad adventure, yeah. No. Okay. Uh, I had many favorites, like Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if you ever played that one. It was fantastic because Is that the one where you used your whip to like swing yeah. across pits and stuff. Yeah. I do remember that one. Yes. Okay. But they told you how to use all your gear and then let it go. You had to discover okay. all the rooms. You had to discover what to do, how to find the ark. You had the, it was clues and stuff. So that was a favorite, yeah. Space Invaders, the Star Wars ones, but none of those drew me in as much as the basic programming cartridge. So there you go. So seven, eight years yeah. old, pulling right into that right from the start. Yeah, I know. It's 
because it is old, old grumpy pants on. <laughs> I remember, you know, everybody has these stories, I guess, if you're a little bit of a geek. There's something very cool about programming, about creating order out of chaos, about figuring out how something works, and then being able to figure out how to take it beyond what you know it can do and do something that you'd like to try. So I was at school at Elk Grove High School, where you still had to like put the phone into the snaffler to dial into, and you'd hear all the screams of the tortured robots as you as it negotiated the connection and stuff like that. And I wrote a blackjack program. I wrote a little Star Trek program. You're like a little, like you, like they always have is here's the prototype, the eight by eight cell of where you just had to like figure the exact angle that you were shooting at. And of course, if it's 45 degrees, you can tell that right away. But if you're down here and he's up here, it's like, is that like 54 degrees? And sometimes <laughs> you'd hit it and sometimes you'd just miss. But it was really fun. And the more you played it, the more you got every single angle possible on the screen you had in your head and all that kind of stuff. And it was a delight to learn enough about basic because that's what was available back then. But then when there started to be things like Pascal and PL1 and PLC, and I got to college and there was Fortran and a little bit of COBOL. U of I was not big on COBOL because it wasn't so much a, a business uh, computer science degree. It was more real computer languages. I know that's an odd way to put it, but that's really what it was. It was a more multi-purpose than focus on you always have to have a data and a procedure division because that's all you're going to do is manipulate spreadsheet not spreadsheets you're producing a report what data do you need to be able to put out this screen and put out this report right. so i loved that and the more that it was like okay all the little triumphs of okay i got to be able to take this character string and extract the person's name from it what do i know about there's always going to be a space between things or and then i'll use a an apostrophe as a delimiting character. Oh no, there's some names like O'Hara that someone's going to put an apostrophe in and then I'm going to break in the wrong place. <laughs> and so all those little things you learn about programming, about how to get it working and then get it working no matter what, which is the other 90% of the job. <laughs> you know what I mean? All the defensive programming, all the memory management. Back then, you didn't have terabytes of data storage. <laughs> You had 16K or whatever like right. that. If you worked with a clue, a, a, a color lookup table, you really had to be aware of what sacrifices you were making based on how many colors you're going to include in your program. You're going to allow the user to see because it took up space. I There's all kinds of great quotes about that, that innovation. It's really hard to be creative, just blank page. You almost always have to have some kind of parameters, some kind of limitations to spur a human being to say, now there's a problem to be solved. Now I can't <laughs> yeah. just do anything. I have to do it within these particular restraints. And it spurs you to find elegant solutions instead of just brute force, wasteful solutions. And I still have that in me, even though there really are no limitations nowadays right. as to what you can do. But it still matters to me that I, I have good naming conventions and I have good program structure and I can return to my own code and quickly see what I was trying to do without comments and stuff like that. My first experience with C was, this is like a write-only language. I can come back a week later and not know what the fuck I was trying to do because it was all memory, in re not redirection, in misdirection, indirection, whatever, you know what I mean? It was like you're virtualizing everything right away to get away from the machine but you had real restrictions as to like naming conventions and stuff like that. So if I'm trying to describe something complex, but I got eight characters, 24 characters, whatever to do it, quickly the constraints are harsher 
than our like real world problem solving usable. Right. And I had, I hated that language. And even when it became C plus and C sharp and all the others, I just, my initial change the world. It really was the most efficient way of writing like pseudo code or, or being close to the machine while still being human readable, virtualizing it enough. But somehow that's not how my mind worked. And so I always embraced other languages because I just found it tedious, not only trying to read my own code, but if I had to try to interpret somebody else's code, can't tell you how many times I'll be like, I should just write this myself. I have a code base that works. And yet I can't get my mind around not only what he's trying to do here, but what's going on elsewhere that if I change it here, something will break and it'll be like, what dark magic is this? Can't be that that matters. That really? Ah, well. I remember back in the Commodore days that there used to be a challenge because Commodore, you could append multiple commands with semicolons. And so the challenge was to see what you can get written in one line of code and what you could have it do with one line. And it was a lot of characters for the Commodore and it was a big programming thing. But if you really want that limitation challenge, there is still a very thriving homebrew market for the Atari 2600. And these wow. people are not using Unity and all that. They use an emulator with a 6502 assembler and they write it like in a step. Before the 88, the 6502, exactly. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you want your challenge. There you go. You can fit your whole code on one screen nowadays, probably. Yeah. You know what? Uh, every... I think that one of the things that's made me by straddling multiple generations of what's going on, you get an appreciation for when you see hackers trying various different things, because if you're the one that had to write assembler code and you were aware of I'm moving things in and out of a specific memory location and I'm getting truncated sometimes and that breaks it. But if I break it elegantly, I leave something behind in memory that I can use if I'm doing an attack <laughs> and all those kinds of things like knowing what you had to do to get something working. And you also ran into all those character versus numeric and memory invalid data in field that then you said, what, how could I use that like against the machine that I break it in the way that I want to break it. And that's so much of how every kind of buffer overflow attack is based on that. Every so many database things are pushing it beyond. Not, there's no command that says do that. But once you know how to make that happen, then it's, what leave behinds can I have that then I can address and run? And that's the evil code. Boy, and sorry, uh, NSA, if I'm giving away my knowledge of hacking and the underlying things that people do are so, I'm falling behind. I'm probably decades behind at what used to, when you bump into 6502 or 8088 or 8086 type stuff. But having said that, it's Maybe that is still running the utility plant that is still running individual yes. chips in individual older situations. And then you really can screw up like, oh, I, I can turn off the electric grid because I know how primitive these things are, but also how to penetrate them. And, right. Wow. I had the insurance <laughs> company I used to work for, I had an old 8088 box with a like eight inch drive on it and stuff. I used it for a doorstop. <laughs> <laughs> I everybody has their trunk of old wizard stuff where I've got truly old like floppy disks there were nine inch guys and then there was this size and you actually had a little 
like piece of metal tape that you would put on to make it read only because you could <laughs> stop it from being able to be changed. And then they had finally the ones in the little plastic cases that were the, those other ones were just in like a plastic sleeve. And it was so easy to screw them up. If you put them in your backpack and a spiral bound notebook pressed too much into it, screwed up your diskette. And, ah, I, I have, I hope I made a backup of that because otherwise I am so screwed. And Finally, the little ones were relatively indestructible, but then people started like using them as coasters or you still had to worry about magnetism. There's a whole generation that's not aware that like when you have a MagSafe connector for your laptop and that's how your power plug stays in, there's a whole generation that says, what are you doing with a magnet near your computer? That, no, yes. that will wipe your everything. And when I first saw that, it was like, okay, they really must know enough about magnetic fields and at what the number of Ursteds that this thing puts out that it can get this close, but the distance is such that it really won't be able to get past the shielding or whatever. Because it used to be, if you wanted to erase a disc, you just ran a magnet over it and it was gone. Exactly. <laughs> there was no protection whatsoever. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, one of the other cool things I've discovered is you've probably seen a lot of those retro flashbacks machines they have out where it's which cracks me up because it's, oh man, it looks like an Atari or a Commodore and it's got 10 games on it. Really? Commodore had 5,000 games. You put 10 on there. But I found one and I can do this with my Pi, obviously, but I found one that actually boots into the OS and you can program and type and save to the virtual disk and write. Plus what yeah. really makes that cool to me is, I don't know if you remember Compute and Compute Gazette magazines yeah, they have- exactly program listings in there that you could type in. So, okay, for, from, um, if you're a young generation, you could go to the store and buy a magazine, if you know what a magazine is, and, and open it, it up in. and <laughs> type the code listed into your machine and have a brand new game to play in a, a matter of a weekend of time. <laughs> I remember I had Byte Magazine. I don't think they had code listings, but Apple yeah. Byte or there was multiple platforms were supported and I, just that if, if you want to learn how to debug something just try typing a whole bunch of stuff in oh, and how many typos you would have thought man i'm not an awful typist and yet there were typos that could just do you in and so you learned a lot about compile errors absolutely and syntax errors and all that kind of stuff that's very fun and, and the fun <laughs> thing is you can go to archive.org and find a lot of those magazines up there so it's kind of fun to browse through and look and the things talked about and all that yeah, yeah. Kind of I remember the first you know, writing code is like writing where you can tell pretty much who did it. That I remember reading certain things and saying, boy, this seems like uh, Wozniak code or something like that. You know what I mean? That you just get an idea of how they structure it, how they name things, the gestalt of it, the feel of it, that you started to have, like I could recognize comic book artists after a while. It's not, right. not all cookie cutter and exactly alike. I could tell. Kurt Swan from Jim Aparo, from Gil Kane, from probably dozens, right? Dozens of different ones. And sometimes that'd be like, this guy's trying too hard to look like Neil Adams. Early <laughs> was like, that's not just a, an homage. That's like he's copying. You know what I mean? I used to love that. And I know I've also, it's funny, I've been in the field for a long time. It's not only doing it, it's also that you read books about people that interviewed great coders. I've Wow, I have never written a masterpiece. I'm not the first guy that figured out how to do vector graphics where in real time you could draw anything that you wanted and then pixelate it. 
digitizes right. to put it on a screen. And so the guy who first did that, like he went to the French Alps and hid for a year and figured it all out. How brilliant. That's just so awesome. Or the guy that did the, the perfect first game, perfect first report generator where it wasn't, you can do these canned reports, but here's how I can show you all the data. And then you can say, I'd like to have these number of columns going across that he would say, oh, that's more than 72. So now that will not fit on a standard. I just, when they talk about, they interviewed those guys and said, so what are you doing? How do you figure this out? And the insights into, I've talked a little bit about it, flow state. I already knew about that. What music do you listen to? Do you put yourself, you can't usually do it in a busy environment, but a lot of times it's not dead quiet. You need a little bit of external distraction to help you focus on this, whether they did it in bursts, coded for an hour or two, and then they kind of needed to refresh their brain. You know what I mean? They used up all the uh, ADP that their brain had to really fire well, and they'd go to a movie. You know what I mean? Isaac Asimov talks about this as a writer, that when he was writing and got stuck, he didn't like stare until blood came out of his forehead. He would take a break and go to an environment very much unlike this. A lot of people talk about it. You go in the shower. And while you're getting sensory overwhelm from the noise, from the water of it, like your mind in the background is working and it says, oh, you can do this. And he goes and tries it. And it works. thank you universe for giving me this gift. Right. writing music or coding or whatever else it might be. I think that's really cool. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you had it early. You started doing basic stuff at age seven. That's well, it was. I like, don't think I was seven. I think I was like <laughs> in my teens. I was probably 13 when I was that. It, it, yeah, it was very <laughs> limited. You could print and loop a few things. But you had the interpreter and the program running that you in the 8k plus yeah. then what you were writing so you got real limited what you could do but the bug was there that, it right. drew me in and then when i got the commodore it was like i did I made exactly. a couple you know, and games and, really the psychology of that like everybody's first program is hello world because you want to be able to say i put that on the screen i did that i told i am the master of the machine <laughs> i remember duplicating some atari games on my commodore just figuring it out how to make the same type of game with sound effects and all sorts exactly. of Exactly. I'm in that weird, interesting place where I had to learn both EBCDIC and ASCII and Unicode, like not both. As you work with something as low level as, well, there's a character set. And how do you throw characters up on the screen? Not only the individual pixels, but you now you have, and there was up to 64. And then when you had another 64, because it went to 128, what are they going to include? It's going to be all kinds of punctuation marks that maybe weren't as common as what's along that top row, but it was also all the diacriticals and all the, you know what I mean? It, it was very cool. What choices had to be made to say, we want to support as many languages as possible. So then if you break out of English and start looking at, I can add umlauts and sets, and that might be all that's different about German. Whereas in Spanish, you have to go with your cedillas, you have to, they have a whole bunch of diacriticals right. and appendages, if you will. And then I need eight, 15. I don't know because I don't speak Spanish well enough. But and maybe, you know, how can I program to be in Hawaiian? They only have 12 letters, right? <laughs> and you just got to be able to use that apostrophe a lot. <laughs> I loved learning that, even if I didn't know enough languages to appreciate it. I loved someone's going to figure this out. They're going to figure what's the set that's going to cover. 120 languages with 
the base set, and then these are the things that's going to give us, and then, so that's still as if they're, let's say, Roman characters. Once you move to Russian, where it's its own character set, Lithuanian, then of course, once you break into Unicode is where you could have, wow, now I've got Urdu. Now I've got things that are nothing at all like English. And in fact, you read from right to left and stuff like that. And even if I wasn't enough of a language master, I could appreciate that's such a cool thing to figure out. It's related to like cryptography. Is there a character for character translation of this where there isn't? Like why didn't Japanese or Chinese quickly computerize because they had languages that were big character sets and they had to come down to kanji or other even call it corrupted sets to be able to do something computer-like instead of the work of art that many of their characters right. are as to how they build them. And you really had to be almost a calligrapher to do that. So that has played out in my lifetime that like the first time that, uh, I don't know, I think Apple was early with that, that they had all those character sets and they could, you could print them on your laser printer. So they looked good, not pixelated and choppy. And that you started, boy, I learned so much about typography by learning about what's kerning, what's like where you have combined characters, like a diphthong, but not spoken. I wish I could think of the name for it. Maybe a di diagrammatic. It, to be able to just start doing that, like now it's not each character in its individual cell, but it looks like more like regular printed typeface type stuff right. because you combine the f and the l together where the dot of the f is actually touching and joined into the next character and all of those little combinations were also in the character set and postscript was the first language developed by adobe that made it so that you could design your own fonts you could take those old fonts times roman and the and and make your own and they started to play with, what do we know about fonts now? Typefaces is the better term. Everybody says fonts, but it's really typefaces. <laughs> right. You know, what's the most, the best as a, a headline where it's readable from far away, each character is distinct. You know, what's the best, as you know, there's a difference between serif and sans serif, where the little bars on the top and bottom of each character help you to flow across when you're reading, and it makes for easier reading. There's time-honored faces, and when they started to, develop them there really were now someone did develop this bodoni is named after bodoni or something right how do i make sure that he gets what a, a micro penny for every time i use his font because you can't have it slow down the innovation of the computer but how do you get that licensing agreement and there's where was a time when you had to buy a set of 100 extra fonts and then but you couldn't use them everywhere it would substitute what it had in your hp printer right. font inventory and then now it's not WYSIWYG. I made it so that it's exactly right on the margins. And now because it did some font substitutions, there's just enough difference in the M and the N space that it overflowed and truncated. And fuck me, I can't count on being able to just make it look beautiful and print it. And then now it was with the reverse. And then they had the reverse where they had the HP fonts that you could then install into Windows so that right. it was the same. Make sure that it was like that, that it was screen to paper match and stuff yeah. like that. That's exactly right. And that's a solved problem now. Nobody has to worry about that anymore. But when it first became available that like, I could create my own font, I could have this bold and stuff like that. I really was fascinated by that. That's it's a, It would only print in orange. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I got a font that I really did make, but I never put to computer that it's made out of crescents, like crescent moons. Uh, and 
made it so that each character looked pretty good. And this, so each character meaning A to Z and capital and small and lowercase. And then when I started to play with everything else, man, this is really tough. It's <laughs> tough to, I wasn't a good enough artist. I wasn't a good enough, I didn't think it through as to, okay, if I'm going to commit the ampersand to look like this, then I can't have, you had to make, of course, make each character distinctive. And just, there's always been things about how do I make my Bs and my eights so that you really don't make any my L's and my ones, my my threes and my B's and my eights, and <laughs> I'm all over the place today. I'm I don't mean to talk your ear off. Besides doing that of how to make them, there started to be optical character recognition software available where you could like scan a book, and right now it was just the image, and then it would interpret that to be here's what the text says. Right back before Google digitized every book in the world, there were all kinds of things. My very first business with my older brother, Armin, was to take in data from Delta Airlines that was their scheduled flights and pick the data out of it. And we did that with OCR. And then what all was, you had to you'd let it run. And then you'd say, from context, that can't be what this is. So we have to fix a whole bunch of different things. And at least each month, it was a couple hours work to make it perfect. But to get to automated perfect was next to impossible. There just wasn't enough context with three character airport names and stuff like that, that you could say, okay, is Ord is going to be O'Hare, but I'm trying to think of examples. If that ran into the first time Ord in an 815 and it didn't know to make the break, it thought that now that was like a six character, seven character string because it included the colon. And we just had so much fun learning how to do it, but every four, we did it. And then there wasn't a month that went by that it wasn't like, huh, that never occurred before. And now we still have, so whatever I could code, and I was coding in fourth dimension, a database package for the Mac, and I could do almost anything I wanted to. But after a while, you're like, man, I've got so many very individualized cases. Right. And it was to save us the time and the possibility of error. But like, eventually we have to call it quits. I don't want to be putting in four hours of work to catch the thing that happens one in a hundred thousand times. And Right. We had to say we're going to have to scan it. Our human beingness is going to be what says this isn't right. But telling the computer how to do that to make sure that it was infallible was really hard. And I guess that's a cool thing about being a computer guy is you make those. When is it worth writing a macro? Because I'll do this again and again, and I want it to run perfectly. Or when is it worth saying I'm going to automate it about two thirds, and then I'll jump in and do the last padding into place? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Maybe you've done that. I do surveys a couple times a month where it's taking it from the survey monkey, the surveys, the downloaded spreadsheet, and yeah. then getting it into our system with bar graphs and everything. But okay. to get that data in, I wrote a little stuff to import it. And maybe it could be improved or whatever, but you got to select what fields you want and it writes out the import file and then you run the import file. And why don't you just automate it? Well, because there's always a little difference here or there, or it misses something reading it in from the spreadsheet. And yeah. you got to be able to catch that stuff or you have just as much work anyway. So exactly. it's automated to a point, like you said. I'll tell you another thing. I So I worked doing interesting financial things for a while in the late 90s before I had some bad business and I had to get out for a while to reclaim my soul. 
one of the things that we did was we would get data from multiple sources, Telerate, Reuters, and uh, past historic data to be able to run against what, it, for me, became Gambit, my, my genetic algorithm-based trading systems, and to find out that you expect, the reason we had to get it from multiple sources, because if we depended on only one, there were continuously errors, that there were data was incomplete or that it was complete, but didn't match from one to the other. And it's like, how could you have a different closing price for this stock on that date? It's historic fact. No, they each had their own system and they didn't make a point of cleansing it. They supplied this bulk data because nobody else had it. But, and I don't know how many times it made a material difference in how our systems worked, but there was enough data that was like, Wow, this is off by a factor of 10. Of course that could impact. It dropped to zero. There was enough of that. Wow, this is supposed to be the authoritative source and I'm still having to clean it up and fix it. And I think I told you, me and Randy Meacham at Pete Marwick did a whole bunch of stuff with data name rationalization and data cleansing. And Randy's a brilliant coder between the two of us. We talked through so many interesting problems about how to, again, to geek it up, in IBM world, there was IEB Jenner and IEB Copy. There were two ways of reading a tape. And one was that you just read the tape. One was that you had a, what does they call it? A section in the front that described what's going to follow on the tape. Like really long ago before HTML, right. before there was tagged coding and stuff like that. And they did all kinds of interesting cryptic things to describe what data was going to follow because they had to have a little bit what we talked about. The data names are never all correct. There's things that are too long. And so we found a way to compress it. There's things that have characters in them that we didn't expect to see because once you go international, it's different than what you have seen before. And Randy found a way to do all that interpretation of the, the header file for IAB copy to be able to read all that data. And like when he showed that he had it working, IBM was like, we don't know anybody else that's figured out how we formatted this. So hats off to Randy for being so impossibly smart. How cool. And I still like that kind of stuff that underneath all of what we see on the screen nowadays, there's still somebody that's figuring out how do I transmit this quickly? How do I compress it so that there's either lossy or lossless? All the things we do with any kind of rich media, music and so forth, there's ways to do compression that we use our awareness of human senses to say, I'm not going to notice in an MP3 that I chopped a whole bunch out, but it still sounds pretty good while it flows on a crappy radio. And it's only when you listen to it on audiophile equipment or that you're aware between the original and this, you can say, oh, it really does sound kind of like choppy, butchered, right. wrong. And then you find out what your CD format, and then how do I digitize it off of a CD and what concessions do I make there? Because I got to decide how much I'm willing to spend storage on it. And nowadays in the era of terabyte drives, I don't do anything lossy. Everything is lossless to me so that I have it at the highest fidelity that I can have so that it's as good as I can make it, even if my sound system is not tube amps and perfect, but it's still, at least I know that my data is not the source of why it feels exactly what I mean. Uh, yep, yep. So, so I kind of, again, I kind of like knowing that's how that's being done. And whenever they have new, not only for music, but like video coders and decoders, how is it that we managed to get streaming working around the world? Because we found a way to take really rich media, like full, is it 24-bit, but with deeper color tables and music that's synchronized with it and make it so that it appears on your screen while you sit on your couch. You know what I mean? There's no way the Netflix is and the Disney's and the HBO's and everybody of the world would exist 
to because it used to be put it on a CD and then a DVD and you had a specific machine that did all that. Now they like put it over the wire. They put yeah. it in, the, in the ether on Wi-Fi and you still get a good experience. And that's really an amazingly cool thing right. in my lifetime to have seen that happen. And they're still, <laughs> still kind of working on that 4K. I've tried to explain to people that if the streaming service does not supply 4K, you're not getting 4K just because that's you have right. a TV. Yeah talk looks funny they have all kinds of tricks they talk about how your tv will upscale older pre-blu-ray dvds to make it look like but all it does is like maybe smoothing it doesn't give you right. more data it doesn't give you richer color palette and stuff we how double the pixels <laughs> like that but i'll tell you what's also cool is when you see what they can do that it really whoa it looks really better you know yeah. what i mean like the face doesn't look at all blotchy or wrong in any of the color gamuts and stuff like that that they really the algorithms are so smart that they improve it. And nowadays, from what I understand, we got our little devices here, like this amazing camera, it does all kinds of things where you don't just take a snapshot and it puts it onto a piece of film and that's what you got. It takes three or five images and then it does this interesting computer interpolation between all of those yeah. to say, based on all the light capture and all the various different, slight different depth of field or whatever else it might be, I'm going to make a composite image that is my guess at the best thing I could make out of this all in real time. How cool is that? You yeah. know what I mean? That it's like, it kind of like when they first started to do innovations for, we got the big space telescopes now. And as you, it's not like one big dish, it's a whole series of little tiny dishes that all have their own intelligence and they make composite images out of all that, but they got so much computing power behind it. And they got such incredible wonderful granularity about the materials that are capturing light that they can do magic they can take light that was four billion years old from far away in the universe right. wow that's the horsehead nebula look at this guy that looks beautiful it looks perfect yeah I yeah that, that we're figuring that out man that new web telescope wow. i remember when yes. the hubble went up and it's wow look at these hubble pictures and now you look at the web telescope you're like see these like starlights that's a galaxy that's a whole <laughs> galaxy exactly <laughs> i love the just every day there's so they just got some transmission from is it the voyager the one that's now yeah outside, outside the solar system out into like true empty nothing deep space. And yet they're still able to communicate with it. This tiny, like, laser shot, an amazing amount of way to be able to get a coherent transmission back and forth. It not that just amazing? That's it's one crazy. grain of sand talking to another grain of sand on another planet. And so, it, oh, my God. It, it, <laughs> and it's only going to... It's only going to be able to keep doing that until that alien race finds them and reconfigures it, sends it back for the Enterprise to get it. Exactly. We, we don't have too much yeah. Women shaving their head bald and all kinds. Of, now it's crazy. Exactly. So speaking of innovations, this was where we were going to go. Time Life came out with their new, what is it, 100 for exactly. the year? Here's, here's the, here's the can you, if I put my favorite there you go. Yeah. issue. Of course, it focuses on democracy because we just had an election that really we happily reclaimed that elections matter and that we're not just going to say i don't like the result and so i refute it no it really is that we're going to choose our elections <laughs> by real elections and stuff like that but the cool part that i'm fascinated with is of course they got the best innovations for 2022 
every year when this comes out, I can't tell you how heartened I am. The world has problems. We really have terrible climate change. We have supply chain problems. We have resource contention and so forth. But to see, if you will, innovation, capitalism, not the government decided to fix the problem. They can contribute to that because they have money and they have resources that individuals do not. But it's often individuals that just say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a Band-Aid that it has enough detection of illness in it that it'll tell you in case you're getting an infection. Like, how, maybe people thought about that before, but until the exact material science and miniaturization and understanding of, I want to be able to tell you for 24 different diseases, so it's not wear a different Band-Aid depending on what you have, and then you hope that you detect an infection, here's the top 24 infections you can get, and it captures them all. And we could just start talking about, there's been such wonderful, amazing innovations over the course of time. One of the reasons I first started to watch TED was because people were talking about, I figured out how to way that we can make it that people can burn dung in a way that's the primary fuel source, but in a way that it's not, then they're inhaling the burn off of it, which is nasty and (laughs) deadly and things like that. And every time there was like, and we can do this for 13 cents so we can put them all over Africa and South America and Asia and distressed countries and distressed regions. We can get clean water where unclean water kills millions, tens, hundreds of millions a year because it not only has particulate, it's got diseases. And how do you get that out? Hats off to Bill Gates. He's one of those guys that after it had been coming as rich as Midas, he didn't just say, print it all off and make a big stack of green bills and I'll sit on the top and I'll be the king. He said, I've got amazing abilities now, and I'm going to cure malaria. I'm going to I'm going to find a way to do it with nets and mosquitoes and make the mosquitoes sterile and whatever else is going to happen. I'm going to cure river blindness. I'm going to make possibilities of education around the world to people that don't even have a hope of that now. And in his away from his entrepreneurship phase, his mogul phase, now he's in the philanthropist phase. Boy, have they, he's done amazing things with his money. Yes. And it makes you always like, you know, whatever, if you were a billionaire, you didn't become Batman, go to hell. Why didn't you fix the world with your amazing power? Which kind of covers a lot of the very rich politicians that are out there right now. So hats off to Bill Gates. What are some of these innovations before we really delve into that rabbit hole? Yeah. But just, just that to see, it's kind of, I almost kind of like page through it, but just for having gone through it. What are the what are big themes? Of course, we're confronted with energy things. So what are they doing about batteries? What are they doing about getting away from fossil fuels or using them more efficiently or how to do them without creating as much pollution, how to do carbon capture, how to have battery tech so that you'll build one of the difficulties with solar is that we have night as well. How do you store the result of whatever you've done with wind or solar or geothermal so that Store it where it happens and also transmit it to the places that it's needed because you can't necessarily build a whole bunch of windmills in the middle of downtown New York or whatever else it might be. And how many things are like science fiction? Like it's not just Greg Bear just died, but he was one of those hard science guys that kept thinking if we extrapolate science, we should get to this place of zero point energy or whatever else it might be. And then you keep reading year by year. My God, they're doing it. They're figuring out. How to have, we now have two nanometer chip technology. Wow. That's five atoms across. That's almost, oh. I, 
quantum computers and what they're doing. Just go back to the old Star Trek series, list the tech, and then check all the stuff that has come true. Exactly that. We got tricorders. We got Earl Grey hot. We got we got the fact that was done as like a throwaway, but then became a challenge. And then someone said, we're not teleporting yet, but we're doing near instantaneous communication. And we're figuring out from what's the hard part of this, what it will take to be able to get there. We're going to need this much more power or this much more computing power or these different materials. And then someone says, I bet you I can make a black that's blacker than black. I can make Vanta black that absorbs 99.99% of light so that it's like, it doesn't even look like black. It looks like void. And, yeah. and every year they just had, there's a paint, maybe BMW, if I remember correctly, that, that where it changes color during the course of the day so that your car will not get too hot and not get too cold. And I don't know what it costs. There's always cost trade-offs, but when and they and something as simple as they have a particular bright red lipstick has for a long time depended on, if I remember right, like crushed bug parts, whatever the carmine that goes into it is very specific. And the way our eyes see it, it's exact, it has to be this, but then they worked and worked on it. And now if you will, vegans people that don't want to ingest any animal material now have a plant-based red that they can put on their lips and so that seems to me petty i don't really care about lipstick but the technology that went into figuring out how color works figuring out how plant versus animal how do they capture how do they generate pigment what all do you do there and how do you create an artificial version or at least from a different source it's just fascinating because then you know that someone's going to say, if I can do that for that, maybe I can make a stop sign that is so red that it will really work better than the other ones have right. and we'll have less accidents. Well, name it. Name the cool innovations that will come from everything. Right. This program was like, it's not space food sticks and tang. It's GPS. And it's, we did amazing things. So, science and tech does seem to be the only thing with the trickle down effect. Finances doesn't seem to have gotten there, but this does. <laughs> yeah. And if you talked about it a couple episodes ago, one of the reasons that I'm so much a liberal versus conservative or a scientist versus a non-science person is because there's proof and proof of it matters. Every day my life is made better with, I've got drugs available to me now that keep me from proceeding into diabetes that, that they didn't have that. And what, what would I have to do? be just lose a ton of weight or just resign myself to i had the genetic makeup that kind of predestined me to get it and then indeed i didn't stay away from pizza enough and so now here i am but and i don't want it to be that like technology is about letting you get away with shit letting you fix your mistakes but it, in in so many ways every single day my life is made better because of better communication better material science better medical science i just went as at the ophthalmologist and they now have sensors so that instead of having to touch your eye to see if you have cataracts or glaucoma, they can do it with a puff of air, or they can just do it with the sensor that says your lens is this percent occluded, grayish or whatever you might call it. And that means, nope, no cataracts yet. But they didn't have to go, dink, how's that doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? And right. I just, it's very cool that they, that as we get better and better sensors, that we find out the assumptions we had to make about how things work, you um, abandon them because you find out better or you reaffirm, yep, that really is how light works. 
and all those kinds of things. And you can use the more that you know about these kinds of things to just the more you can miniaturize things, the more you can make it that, I don't know, it used to be a problem to be able to put a label on each piece of fruit so you could sell it at the grocery store. And now we're getting it to be that there's nothing that you produce that you could put if you wanted to a little chip in there that would say, here's what I am. And so it has a little bit of odd thing where now everything is traceable and that's a little bit weird, but it's also, if you're trying to do inventory, it's not closing the shop up for a weekend and counting every book you scan and you know exactly what you have because everybody's got a little reader. You got a reader and it's got a sensor. And like, it's funny. I know I've just chatted about some of the innovations there's nothing more heartening to me than to see all the ways, all the incremental ways in which we are making cars that now instead of just LIDAR, which is the, the way of detecting what's around you, now it also has a way of, and this is straight out of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, you can know the position of something or the the speed of uh, the velocity of something, but not both. If you have sensors that do each of those things and then put that data together in a way that you can extrapolate, I not only know that there's a truck next to me, I know how fast it's going. And then you have less accidents, provably 20% less accidents, meaning we're saving 80,000 lives a year or something like that. And same with drug interactions and same with, it's just the coolest thing. It's just the coolest thing, the power of big data and the power of big energy and the power of big medical. They have a, a lens that can go on your phone now it's the equivalent of a 200 power microscope instead of being able like pulling up a microscope and putting your little slide on there and then zooming in and seeing you can use your phone to show microscopic life wow oh my god how i <laughs> you have like this god box in your hand that can see far and see near and extrapolate pictures and communicate with everything and tell you your oh. health and remind you of your appointments and yes you can watch getting videos too right. it's the well, coolest thing I mean, you were talking about bill gates and how he's innovating and helping all over i just briefly i went to a funny bone a comedy club thing in columbus last night it was a fundraiser for children in cambodia that was a cool thing but what i was going to bring up is with the phones, it is allow phones are allowing all the quote unquote third world countries to catch up. We went through how many years of computers and desktops and laptops, they're skipping all of it and everybody's getting a phone and boom. I am doing a project right now. I just hired a lady from Pakistan to draw my pictures for the project. Wow. And I would have never met her. She wouldn't have got my money before, but she's sitting in Pakistan drawing these images. She might be doing it all on her phone. I know I've read things about people from these countries that are like, you know, before we were just stuck with what we had. Now we're reaching out to the whole world. It, this is what Gene Roddenberry envisioned with Star Trek. Absolutely. That we really are one world and that there are amazing, talented, brilliant, et cetera, people everywhere. And that we benefit because we tap into that amazing source and they benefit because it helps them rise out of poverty. They're not only, I got to embrace the stereotype, rice paddy people or factory people, they can be part of the first world from that connection. Right. That they're dealing in data, that they're dealing in creativity, mind work, knowledge workers. That's an amazingly cool thing. And, and, and some of these countries still, if they earn $50, it's not like us where it's, okay, 
well, $50 will get me a tank of gas and nothing else. $50 is to go help feed my family for a couple weeks or something. Exactly. And I'm getting these images. I'm like, are, are you sure that's the price? Because that's a lot cheaper. She's like, yeah, that's what she's new. So this is what you sometimes got to do to get going. So I'm like, okay, great. I'll double that and give you a tip because it's still cheaper for me than yeah. what it would have been hiring an American. There's problems with that. I understand buying at home helps, but come on, if our politicians, if our rich politicians are not doing anything to help everybody here, why is anyone getting on my case for hiring one girl from Pakistan? See, I, boy, that's a whole huge discussion, but I agree yeah. with a lot of that, that it isn't the first time that I was aware of a lot of this, the Buy America campaigns was for cars. And it was like, I would love to buy a Ford or a Chevy, but I'm over here watching Honda kick your ass and Nissan, then Datsun kick your ass and Toyota. They get better mileage. They're safer. They have a more complete feature set. And you're telling me it's all about bigger fins. It's all about white walls. You're it is no wonder that you're falling behind because you just, you don't know your customer. You're an American. Well, it's not only that, <laughs> you know? it's the people that buy them. They're like, buy American. I bought a Ford. It's like, you don't, you're buying the marketing that's shoved down your throat. You're buying the lie. And that's okay. Well, here we go. Politics. Why do you think we have the problem? Because people bought the lie. But that's how right. many of, oh, this is a Ford. Okay, great. The company is owned in America. But the factories in Mexico, the parts were made in Korea, and then they just shipped it here to sell in an American place to you. So you're paying even more money to that company. So the CEO is rich yeah. and people have made comments. I wouldn't drive a foreign car like a BMW. I'm like, you know what? That BMW was assembled in America with American parts. Exactly. That's, I'll tell you, like all of what you're saying, absolutely true that the lie that they were selling and the, I'm not going to compete by innovation and quality. I'm going to compete by appealing to your tribalism. I'm going to compete by trying to have tariffs and protective policies put in place. Instead of, it used to be that Americans would say, well, the reason that we're first is because we make the best. We make the best steel and gym shoes and cars and whatever else it might be. And then when we find out that we're actually going to have to compete, really compete like capitalism says on innovation, on quality, on repeat business and stuff, suddenly we decided that you buying a better product is un-American. And wow, can you say that to me with a straight face? Make stuff better. Oh, I, a, a lot of these innovations are happening here in the States, but of course not only here. In Israel, in, in the it, in Japan, in, everywhere. There's scientists don't always no. worry about borders and countries. That's right. And a little bit of what you said, the um, the fact that we've now got we had to go through all these various different generations of copper in the ground and then fiber optic and now Wi-Fi and for to get our communications and for instance the Scandinavian countries had limitations about they couldn't do that with the fjords and mountains and weather conditions in the way so they figured out how do we do it that we never have to worry about burying countless cables and stuff like that so they got Nokia right was the first with cell phones and innovations, Bluetooth, wireless, etc., to get to where they skipped all of it. They just said, uh, there's any number of great business quotes that say, you know, the way you the, make a great company is not only by finding something that's being done and make it like 10% better. It's by making a product that's so disruptive that it makes the old one obsolete, like ridiculously. And right. so if that's what we're going to be getting from the other, we just hit 8 billion people. 
Wow. And I always have to share this quote. Kurt Vonnegut, when he heard about it going to $7 billion, said, and I suppose they'll all want dignity. And I don't know what to make of that because it's both dark and hopeful, but it's just world-weary thing that the more that we get people, like how unique are you, one out of 8 billion, is it any different than one out of 7 billion? The mind glaze is over with how big those numbers are, but we really do have, out of all those billion, they're not only subsistence farmers, those are the next great innovators and artists and scientists and leaders and stuff like that. And another thing that time does is not only this thing about things, but they regularly have 100 biggest influencers, if you will. And it's very cool to see, wow, who are the political leaders, who are the journalists, who are the scientists, all the different ways in which you can change the world. And we've talked about this a little bit before, too. When you talk about who are the thousand most important people of the previous millennium, I was very pleased to see that it wasn't sports heroes. (laughs) It was always authors and political and not just political hacks, but people that changed the world, a different way of doing politics or the best of their kind. And that's always what I have hope for the future about is it's coming. And there's another great quote, maybe from Arthur C. Clarke of the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that every time that these things come out, you'll see it, maybe it'll come out to certain countries first or to the rich first, but there's incredible opportunity and pressure to push it out to everyone because that's where real money is made is mass production to 8 billion people not a product that sells to 300,000 or something like that it's nice to be in the world where i can own a bmw or a yacht or whatever those things are but nowadays i can have the fastest personal computer in the world the absolute best thing for about like 1300 dollars that's an amazing thing compared to I need a room full of computers buried under the ground with right. air conditioning running constantly in order to be able to do moonshot calculations. I love working in a field and living in a world where that kind of stuff continually happens. It's not just this special magic band-aid is only available to the richest of the rich. No, they got it over at CVS. It's right there. How cool is that? Yeah. You know that all the world gets to benefit from some of that brilliant and people that said we can roll this out. We just had all the response to COVID was, how are we going to figure out this amazing, wily, aggressive virus and in near real time and then figure out we didn't get it all. So now it's still mutating. So now we got to do variations one, two, three, Omicron. I think it's Omicron. And we're still suffering for that. We still have people dying there. There's any number of stats that say we're about to get a surge because of the holidays coming up because we let our guard down and we're visiting family and we're traveling. And that's exactly, I just traveled to California and back to visit my mom. And I was very careful in the airports because I'm pretty insular here in Lakewood, Ohio. I see Colleen and I see a certain range of people from my grocery shopping, but you go to the airport and you got people from around the world in the bathroom with you and when they're breathing on you. So I was really careful despite my being fully vaxxed to just say, I don't want to be the guy that lucked out and got the latest variation of the virus. And then I brought it back here to Colleen. Or worse, your mom. You don't want to, especially in the nursing home. That's exactly, and you're exactly right. I was very careful every time that I went in. I always, you know, I show my little, here's my vax card. I'm good. While I'm out there, I was careful, but not paranoid, I guess. I did. I went to a pizza place and got a pizza. I didn't eat with the craziness of many people there. And so I kept 
judging that. If I'm going to go to a movie, I'm going to go at a matinee where there's four people in the place instead of Friday night, Wakanda forever, and there's 10,000 people in the place or whatever. Which, so, which we got to talk about that movie next week. <laughs> Did you, you saw it? No, I haven't seen it yet because I couldn't. I will. In fact, that's one of those we got leading up till Thanksgiving. And then even after Thanksgiving, you got like three days off. So Colleen and I are going to sneak over for a matinee performance or something well, like that. We'll talk about that next week. It's now one of my favorite MCU movies. Very good. Okay. I just saw Black Adam recently, and that's like my favorite DCU movie because it really, it it didn't try to do what so many of the ones that have done poorly. I got to include all the origins. I got to make like my cardboard cutout stereotype characters here they let it play out they let everybody have multiple motivations they let like good and evil or not poles they're shades of gray and very spectrum of all kinds of choices being made and and of course great special effects it looks like comic book heroes what if gods went to war the thing so it it pushed all my buttons and i'm looking forward to wakanda forever doing the same thing my, my question with black adam here before we go why in the DCU do we now have three Shazam movies, which is more than like the big characters? Just asking. I'm not. I'm not sure. Is it because a lot of people don't know those characters that, so that they can do whatever they want to with them? So there's the base thing of Shazam being stands for Solomon, Hercules, etc. But in Black Adam's case, it's the Egyptian deities, and so they. If anything, in each of the cinematic universes, they've always played fast and loose with. It doesn't exactly match canon, you know right, what I mean? Right. But having said that, maybe it's the wish fulfillment. Like if you're trying to get kids into the theaters to have a kid say, I can say Shazam and I'm a grown up and I can right. meet people up or I can get the girl. That's cool for a 12 year old. Yeah. Compared to it's only adult. Maybe there's some of that, that it's a good combination of comic book movies for kids don't have to be richy, rich, childish. They can have elements of both. And I've always loved movies that were able to tread that line between childhood wonder and whimsy, but also adult themes of like responsibility and honor and stuff like that. And villainy. So, yeah, you know. definitely. <laughs> All right. Then All we right. got Wakanda next week. And yeah. any more of the innovative tech we'll try and talk about. Exactly. And as we, we, as we get from past Thanksgiving, we're then allowed to talk about Christmas, which means gifties. Yeah. And so if there's any things that we are particularly thinking are good for this year i have a never-ending list of that's a cool new puzzle that's a cool new book that kind of thing i'll be happy to share what i think are some of the coolest things coming out this year i'll give hints on some of the things i'm because i always like to try and think of and get something innovative for everybody something unique and fun and like my son colin if you saw his green lantern library and his turtles and all that I can't get anything that he would really care for. So go people have said that about me. I have so many that they don't know. I'm going to, uh, how am I going to succeed in getting the rifle shot of something he doesn't? Yeah. So I got okay. other things. So uh, right. some unique ideas, but you really got to know the person. I, we've got a, a set of relatives with some kids. So what do they want? Oh, we don't know. Just get them Visa gift cards. Do you not understand oh. Christmas? No. I, I hate that. I really do too, Stephen. Yeah. It's, I'd rather take the shot and occasionally get, oh, I already got this, or oh, I don't like this, as opposed to just, here's a nothing. Here's yeah. a potential buy. There's something about, take the opportunity to get to know your nieces and nephews and whoever else is like one step removed. You know what I mean? I try to surprise my brother still this year with maybe having 
heard this music. Maybe you haven't read this book. I really liked it. I hope you do too. And I and sometimes they've said, oh, I didn't really care for that. So now I know for next year to not get right. me next in the series. But, but on the <laughs> other side too, what are you teaching your kids when you tell them, we'll just give you money, you buy what you want, or give me the list of three things and I'll make sure and get all three of those. You're not teaching them the joy and fun of Christmas. You're teaching them the materialistic aspects of, I'll just get something I want. There, no, uh, there's a whole conversation over a couple beers there. Exactly. So, <laughs> all, right. all right. Later, man. I really loved your background, by the way. It was very cool to see snow blowing. Honestly, yeah, I got to get gonna, a. I'm going to look to automate myself. So I got to get a stand and try it again because it jumps when it loops because I was just holding it. So I, I got to notice I, that. But it's, it's hardly anything. I don't know how long the, the loop is, but it's long enough that it's not distracting. It all the time. Exactly. Yeah. It's so like, I'll work on that for some video. Other all right. Exactly. Later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, funny. Your beautiful video made me twitchy, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> I feel All like right. punching somebody. <laughs> Have a great Thanksgiving, Stephen. You too, Have sir. Have for everybody, man. We'll do. Turkey legs. There we go. All right. This has been the Relentless Geekery Podcast. If you enjoy our conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and go give us a review. Give us some likes. It would help a lot. Check out our website, RelentlessGeekery.com, where we have links to our Facebook page, Join the Conversation, and go check out our YouTube page, where we have the video of this and other episodes. You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week. <laughs>